If you would, though, let's turn in your Bibles to Mark's Gospel, chapter 2. And last time we met, we got down as far as verse 12. And we're just taking our time, kind of in-depth, going through the Gospel of Mark, studying uh, each passage and trying to, uh, uh, you know, really extract from it all the principles that God would uh, have us to learn. And uh, it says here in verse 13, Then he went out again by the sea, and all the multitude came to him, and he taught them. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, Follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now, we're going to see next week Jesus calling his, his apostles. And so we're going to save a lot of comments about the men that Jesus chose for the work of the kingdom till next time. But I want you to see here as he calls now Levi who later gets renamed Matthew, that Jesus called ordinary men to be his ambassadors, his apostles, but not just ordinary men like fishermen. He also called social outcasts, people that nobody else wanted to be around, people that other people despised. Matthew, or Levi, was one of these. He was a Jew. His name probably indicates he was of the tribe of Levi. That was the tribe, of course, that was devoted to the service of God. So that whole tribe is a holy tribe to God. But Levi, who was a Jew, is a tax collector. Now, the Jews really were outraged that they had to pay taxes to Caesar. Uh, the only one they believed that they were to pay taxes or tribute to was the Lord. And in the Old Testament, God had established some various taxes that they had to pay, temple tax and uh, some other things that God had spelled out in the law that they would have to, to uh, pay. And they didn't mind that because it was to the Lord, and that was fine. But when Rome took over and Caesar imposed taxes on the Jews, this really outraged them. They did not believe that Caesar had any right to take taxes from them. They believed the only one that they were to pay tribute to was the Lord God Jehovah. Now, that was the first problem. The second problem was that you had certain Jews that went over to the Roman side and became tax collectors for Rome. This made those Jews doubly hated. They were looked upon as traitors. And they were also crooks, basically, because Rome sold this job to the highest bidder. It was very lucrative to be a tax collector in those days. Because Rome basically assigned you to a territory and said, look, out of this territory, we want you to exact so, many, so much money in taxes. Whatever you can exact from the people above and beyond that, you can keep for yourself. And so that was a pretty good deal, if you were a, of, of that mindset. And uh, the tax collectors were extremely wealthy because they were very crooked. So not only was Matthew a traitor, but he was a crook. And he was hated hated by his fellow Jews. Now, Jesus walks up to this man, and he calls him. He says, come, follow me. As we have said before, Mark is very, very uh, concise in his you know, portrayal of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so it seems to almost imply that this is the first time uh, Levi had any contact with Christ. I don't believe that, and I don't think anyone really else does. And most of the commentators see in this that uh, Levi had already, you know, begun probably to listen to what Christ 
uh, was teaching, he would probably, you know, go to uh, various places. It says here in verse 13 that Jesus taught uh, at a certain place. Uh, he was going around teaching, and probably Levi had begun to kind of, in his off time, seek him out and listen to what he had to say. I'm, I personally am convinced that Jesus knew Levi, and Levi knew Jesus, and that this wasn't just their first meeting. This was now the call. You see, uh, there was a casual commitment. And this is interesting because oftentimes uh, people will give Jesus a casual commitment. But at one point, he will say to them, look, come follow me. Enough fooling around. Enough uh, time has been lost playing games. It's time to get serious. Come follow me. And Levi immediately left his tax booth and got up and followed Christ. Now, understand, he left an awful lot to follow Jesus. He could never go back to his job as tax collector again. That was a very lucrative thing. Uh, he was no doubt made quite wealthy through this job. And he was willing to leave it all behind to follow Jesus. I think, personally, that's one of the truest indications of the sincerity and genuineness of a person's commitment to Christ. How much are they willing to leave behind to follow Jesus? See? It was a total commitment Jesus was calling Levi to. A total breaking with the old life to begin a new life of following him. Today, I'm sorry to say, too many people follow Jesus out of convenience because they've been promised all kinds of goodies. But you know, the truest disciples, those who are really followers of Christ, it's what they give up, really. It's what they leave behind that demonstrates where their heart is really at. Now, I'm not trying to say that we then can point to those things and say, well, let me tell you what I gave up to follow Christ. Hey, whatever we gave up to follow Jesus is nothing compared to what he gave up for us. But there is something that, you know, in what you're willing to give up for the Lord that indicates where your heart is really at. And I think this is really borne out in Matthew's, uh, in his testimony. He was Levi. After he left everything to follow Jesus, he became Matthew. Matthew means the gift of God. And really, isn't that what the definition of grace is? The gift of God? So his whole life became a living testimony to the grace of God. In fact, God named him basically grace. See, the gift of God. God reached down to this hated crooked tax collector that nobody else wanted anything to do with and Jesus touched him and made him Matthew the gift of God uh, he left a lot behind but you know what that didn't matter what mattered was what God had given to him the grace of God and so Jesus calls Levi and says follow me and he arose and followed the Lord now it happened as he was dining in Levi's house that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many and they followed him. This is also interesting to me. Another way you can tell where a person's heart is for the Lord and the genuineness and sincerity of their commitment is as soon as they come to Christ, they want to tell all their unsaved friends about him. Now understand, Levi or Matthew didn't have a lot of friends. As a tax collector, first of all, a Jewish tax collector, the Romans didn't want anything to do with him because he was a Jew. The Jews didn't want anything to do with him because he was a traitor and a turncoat for Rome. So who did the tax collectors hang around with? 
other tax collectors and assorted sinners and things. And what does Levi do? What does Matthew, as soon as he accepts Christ, the first thing he wants to do is he wants to tell his friends, his unsaved friends. He throws a feast in Jesus' honor and he invites all of his unsaved friends. He wants them to meet Jesus. Hey, what's the first thing you wanted to do when you gave your heart to Christ and suddenly, you know, you became this new creation, you know, and all these old things began to pass away and you began to sense a new life beginning to emerge. Uh, what is the first thing you want to do? You want to tell your friends, your family, you know? I mean, man, when you, when you get Jesus in your heart, you can't, keep, you can't keep quiet. You can't keep your mouth shut. You want to tell people. And so Matthew wanted to tell his unsaved friends. And he invited them all over to his house, Luke tells us, and prepared a big feast in Jesus' honor. And the place was filled with tax collectors and sinners who sat together with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many... And they followed him. So man, Matthew is having quite an impact on his unsaved friends. He invites them over. He introduces them to Jesus. And many of them began to follow Jesus. Now this didn't sit well with a few people. And when the scribes and Pharisees, don't forget, they were there. Why were they there? Because they were scouting him out now. See, he had gotten their attention. Remember when John was out in the wilderness of Judea, baptizing by the Jordan there? And the chief priests and scribes went out, you know, why? They had to check this guy out. I mean, they couldn't ignore him anymore. Something was going on out there. Too many people were coming to hear this guy and what he had to say. And so they wanted to check him out to see where he was coming from. Well, same thing happened with Jesus. Unfortunately, I'm sorry to say that these religious men who were the, supposed to be the religious leaders of Israel did not go out with an open heart to see this prophet, to hear what he had to say. They went out determined to find something to use against him. And it's just a, it was a sad thing. We're going to see this unfold. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, How is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? Now to understand their disdain, you have to understand their culture. Because in their culture, they believed that when you ate with somebody, you became one with them. Because, you know, the way they ate was kind of unique. They had bowls around the table of different kinds of sauces and, and gravies and things. And they had big loaves of bread. You would rip off a hunk of bread. You'd dip in a dish of a, a certain sauce or gravy or whatever, and you'd eat it. And the idea was that you were all eating off the same loaf of bread. And you were becoming one with each other. The same food uh, was being eaten by all. And in a sense, you were becoming one with each other. It was, a very, uh, it was a very powerful cultural thing for them to show love and affection, to eat with someone. Friendship is very big in the Middle East. I mean, hospitality and all. Even if you come under the roof of an enemy, he is honor-bound to watch over you while you're in his house. The safest place to be is in the house of an enemy because he's honor-bound to watch over you. See, and that's just a cultural mindset. But the idea is that they believe you became one with those that you ate with. Now, the Pharisees, of course, would not eat with a Gentile or with any other sinner because they didn't want to become one with a Gentile or with that sinner. And so the Pharisees and the scribes were, were just incensed. They were appalled that he would eat with tax collectors and sinners. And I love what Jesus says to them. He said, verse 17, when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. 
I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I tell you, one of the things that uh, this points out is that Jesus went where the sinners were. Jesus didn't wait for the sinners to come to him, as we so often do, oftentimes do. Well, let's have a big uh, extravaganza in the church and let's draw the sinners to us. There's a lot of people who are sinners that will never set foot in the church. I don't care what you're doing. Jesus didn't wait for them to come to him. He went where they were, you see. He went out to meet them where they were going to be. And by eating with them, he was telling them something that we might miss because we don't have that cultural mindset. But he was saying to them, and remember how the Pharisees responded to these people. Not only would they not eat with them, they didn't want to come near them. See, that was the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious people who supposedly represented God. But Jesus went where the sinners were, and he sat and he ate with them. Why? Because he wanted to tell them, look, I accept you, and I love you, and I want to become one with you. Though nobody else does who claims to represent God, I want to become one with you. And he showed them that by eating with them. I personally believe that if Jesus Christ were walking the earth today, he would be down, you know, ministering to the street people, the prostitutes, the homeless, the drunks. He'd be down there ministering to the riffraff of society, the people that nobody else wants anything to do with because that's just who Jesus was. And what a stark contrast between Jesus and the Pharisees who claimed to represent God, who claimed to love God, but what a difference in the way they related to these people and the way Jesus did. Now, here's the lesson I think we need to really learn. And I'm ashamed to say there was a time, oh, a few years ago, when I found, I had to ask myself some tough questions because as I searched my heart in the way I be, was beginning to feel towards certain elements of society, I had to, and I think the Holy Spirit just really took me and just kind of shook me a little bit and made me take a good hard look at where my heart was coming from, I had to admit that my attitude was one that related more to the Pharisees and the way they felt about people than Jesus Christ. And you know, as I've gone back and started to just really study more intensely the life of Christ, what a role model, what a pattern for us to follow. Uh, Jesus is the, the test. He's the one that we have to constantly uh, set ourselves next to. Not that we'll ever measure up to who as he was, but he's the one that keeps us on the right track. Whenever we begin to drift, we've got to reposition ourselves next to Jesus and see, realign ourselves, you might say, you know, uh, by uh, getting back to who he was and what he was all about and how he approached people. There's a lot of people today that claim to be followers of Christ. Uh, maybe have grown up in uh, church homes, gone to church all their lives, uh, they claim to follow Christ, and yet, as you see the way they relate to the kind of people Jesus related to, uh, they look down on these kind of people. And it's usually because, you know, they've grown up all their lives in the church, and they have a kind of a self-righteous, haughty attitude, because after all, they're relatively decent people by human standards, and they're involved in the church, and they've got a lot of works they can point to to show how wonderful they are. And there's a lot of pride and self-righteousness there, and they look down on uh, these people with a kind of a disdain, a kind of a grossed-out kind of an attitude like the Pharisees and scribes had, you know, uh, against those uh, beer-drinking, cigarette-smoking, dirty-mouthed sinners out there, you know, and I don't want to come in contact with these people that I might, you know, somehow be defiled if I do. And the sad thing about it is that these folks are just as lost as the people they're looking down on. 
they think because they've grown up in the church and have somehow given God some lip service and all, that they're right with God. In reality, they're just as lost as the people that they're looking down on. The only difference is the one group knows they're sinners. They know they're sick and in need of a doctor, as Jesus put it. The other group thinks they're fine. They think they're spiritually healthy. There's nothing wrong with me. I'm in great spiritual shape, and they don't even realize they've got a terminal spiritual disease. But hey, they don't think they're sick. They don't need any doctor. They don't need any correction. They're well, they're healthy. And that's the sad thing because, you know, it's much more dangerous for a person to be sick and not know it and therefore not seeking any help to correct the problem than it is for a person to be sick, know they're sick, and seek out a physician, see? Uh, when Jesus said to the Pharisees, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I did not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. He wasn't saying to the Pharisees, you guys are well and righteous. You don't need a doctor. You don't need to repent because you're all right. He wasn't saying that. What he was saying to them is, look, you guys think you're well. You think you're righteous. Therefore, you don't have any need for a physician. You do, but you don't think you do. So why am I going to waste my time with you guys? I'm going to go where the people are who know they're sick, who know they're sinners and are in need of repentance. I need to go where the people are who know they need me, who know they need to repent and to get right with God. That's what Jesus was talking about. That's what he concentrated on. It's not that he didn't love the Pharisees or the scribes or the chief priests. It was that these folks didn't think they were sick and in need of a doctor. They thought they were they were righteous and spiritually healthy, and they had a terminal disease. They didn't even realize it. That's the tragedy of it all. Jesus told the Pharisees, you guys traverse land and sea to make one proselyte, one convert to Judaism. And when you find him, you make him twice the son of hell as yourself. You know, it's very difficult, extremely difficult, when a person has been approached by a group, and this group convinces them that they represent God and know the right way to get to God and they convert this person to their religious system it's very difficult to take a person like that who's taken a step forward for God you might say to get them to take two steps back and to get on the right track because they've already believed that they've come to a knowledge of God. You see, they've already been taken from darkness into light, they believe. And to convince them, no, they're still in darkness, and they've got to come out of this system and get right with God through Jesus Christ. That's extremely, they're twice as bad as, as Jesus said. You make them twice the son of hell as yourself. It's twice as hard to convince somebody like that that they're not right with God than it is to take a sinner who knows that you know, who an atheist or an agnostic, somebody who doesn't, doesn't claim to, to believe in God or have a relationship with God. It's a lot easier, I believe, to, to minister to somebody like that than to minister to somebody who, like the Pharisees, who thinks they're on the right track but is not. A good illustration of this, of this is uh, last week, Eric and I sat down with a couple of Mormons uh, in my kitchen uh, and there's a big Mormon church uh, in Schaumburg, and uh, this is the first time though I've ever seen any Mormons at my door. Get a lot of Jehovah's Witnesses. You know, one thing about Jehovah's Witnesses, you can get them flustered a little bit. 
you can, you know, you can start pulling the scriptures out and, and, and give them scriptures. And of course, they accept the Bible as the word of God, although they've rewritten it in their New World Translation. But they still, there's still enough there, of course, that you can really show them that their faith is really not biblical, you know. And I've had some, you know, get a little agitated, but at least you know that you're, you're getting through a little bit. They may not agree with you, but at least you're getting through. This was a unique experience for me because these two young guys, age 19 and 21, had grown up in Mormon homes, were on their two-year mission because every Mormon has to go on a two-year mission, and you get assigned to some place in the world, you've got to stay for two years and just and try to win converts to Mormonism. Well, these two guys got uh, stationed uh, in this area, godforsaken place, and... Uh, and they were out there doing their thing. And um, nice, two nice young guys, very uh, respectable, very nice guys. And they sat down and, and uh, you know, we very lovingly just, you know, just began to present some things that we had uncovered and uh, began to just kind of systematically but gently chopping away at the foundation of Mormonism. Because it starts with their prophet, Joseph Smith. So you start there. And we just... We had the facts, we did the research, and we just began to gently just chop away at the foundation, you know. And I thought we just completely chopped it to pieces, okay. And yet, these two young guys were completely unfazed. I mean, it was like, no matter how much facts, no matter how many quotes by prophets that had gone, you know, before, from Joseph Smith on, uh, that had said outrageous things that most Mormons didn't even believe, couldn't phase them that these guys were false prophets, that the angel Moroni was not an angel from God, but the kind that Paul spoke of in 2 Corinthians 11, uh, who transformed themselves into angels of light to deceive. But John said, look, many test the spirits, for not every spirit is from God. Many false prophets have gone out into the world. Paul the Apostle said, there is coming a time when men will, uh, will turn away from the truth and give heed to, to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. And where Paul said in Galatians chapter 1, if I or an angel from heaven preach to you any other gospel than that which I have given to you, let him be accursed. Now everything there hits right at the heart of what the Mormon church believes. It just, I believe, destroys the foundation. And of course, as you compare the prophecies that Joseph Smith gave, things that never came to pass, just things that were just ridiculous, many of them. And yet you try to point them to Deuteronomy 18, where God says, look, if a prophet speaks in my name and it doesn't come to pass, they are a false prophet. Don't be afraid of them. They have spoken presumptuously. They're not from me. And yet, after we hit these guys time after time after time after time, we'd say, well, what do you guys believe about that? Well, you know, it's... Yeah, okay, well, uh, let us go back to our presentation now. And it was just constantly bringing us back to the presentation, you know, that they had. And it just wouldn't be shaken. And I thought, Lord, how sad. Uh, these kids are brainwashed. These, these kids think they're serving you, but it's unfortunate. They're twice the sons of hell as, uh, as an unbeliever. They really are convinced they know it's right. And I can't even get them to think about it. I can't even shake them a little bit. And so we just prayed for him. And we just had to cut it short after a couple hours because it was just going nowhere. And so we just decided to pray for him. But uh, it's sad. And I, you know, no doubt you've come across this too. And so Jesus wanted 
to reach these people. But he wanted to reach them with the truth, of course. He didn't want to get them converted to any religion. He wanted to, them to have a relationship with him. That's the difference between Christianity and religion. One is a system built on rules and regulations and works. The other is a relationship built on grace and the blood of Jesus Christ. And when you have that one, when you really ask Jesus into your heart, you become brand new. And you know what? When you become brand new, you don't forget where you came from. You don't look down your spiritual nose at people that are now sinners. Did Matthew, once he got saved, look down on his buddies because they were still in the world? No. He knew he, was, he had experienced the grace of God, and the grace of God did not allow him to look down on anybody. He knew he was a sinner saved by grace, and he reached right out to the people that were in the, the same position he himself once was, unlike the Pharisees who were just so proud and so into themselves that they didn't want to reach out to anybody. That's the difference. A true person is accepted in the grace of God and has experienced that in their lives. I'll tell you, it's, it's, a whole, it's a whole new life. The disciples of John and of the Pharisees were fasting. Then they came and said to him, Why do the disciples of John and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Now here's the thing, okay? <laughs> the disciples of John, um, John the Baptist, of course, came to prepare the way for Jesus. And John's whole message was a message of repentance. Uh, get your heart right. The Messiah is coming. Repent. Turn away from all your sins and prepare your heart to receive the Messiah. That was John's whole message. And the message of repentance was a message preached by many of the Old Testament prophets. And John was a prophet. And uh, the Old Testament prophets were constantly calling Israel to repentance because so often they had fallen into idolatry and apostasy. And so they would go around and they would fast and they would wear sackcloth and they would put ashes on their head because it was a symbol of mourning. Because the people had gotten off into sin and they were mourning as they called them into repentance, you see. Well, John's disciples, of course, following after John uh, with the message of repentance, I would imagine, continued on in John's footsteps in a sense. They wore the rough camel uh, hair garment, you know, the kind that was real rough and uncomfortable because they were a symbol of mourning. And, uh, and they fasted often. Now, they did that because they believed that's what God wanted them to do. But here now, they're becoming a little bit resentful because Jesus' disciples, the disciples of the Messiah now, they're not fasting at all. You ever run into somebody who's doing something for God that requires them, you know, uh, abstaining from something they enjoy, uh, you know, and they're, and they're really doing it for God, and they look over, and you're in, you know, they're fasting, we'll say, you know, and they look over, and here you are enjoying this night's hot fudge Sunday over uh, uh, as they drive by and see you sitting in, in DQ uh, eating this. And, 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 and inside, there's a little bit of resentment, you know. Well, God, you know, here I'm giving up this for you. What about them? You know, we're always kind of looking at, the other person, well, they were kind of doing that, you know. And Jesus said to them, he said, look. He said, can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. Now, many times Jesus likened himself to a bridegroom and uh, the church to his bride. In fact, that's uh, a very common uh, analogy that we see all throughout uh, the New Testament. 
But Jesus was basically saying to John's disciples, look, I'm with them now. The bridegroom is here. How can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? How can his, you know, his um, best men, you know, uh, fast if the bridegroom is there? It's just basically saying to them, look, there is a time for joy and a time for uh, celebration, and there's a time for fasting and mourning. Right now is a time of celebration because I am here with them. There's coming a time when I'll be taken away from them, and then they will fast, and they will mourn, and things won't be easy, but right now it's kind of a celebration, see? It's a time to rejoice, and uh, the time was going to be coming soon. We know that they were going to move into difficult times where they would fast and mourn. But right now, it was a time of celebration. And then he goes on to say, No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, or else the new piece pulls away from the old, and the tear is made worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine bursts the wineskins, and the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins. Now, Jesus is basically using just a simple illustration to prove a spiritual point. He first of all says, look, you don't take a new piece of cloth that is, hasn't been washed and hasn't had a chance to shrink. You don't take it and sew it on an old pair of pants that has a hole in the knee because what's going to happen is you sew it on there and the new piece of cloth is going to shrink and going to pull away from the pants and you're going to make the hole even worse. You see? You take old cloth to patch up old clothes and new cloth to patch up something new. Um, same thing is true with wineskins. He said you don't take new wine and put it into old wineskins or else the new wine bursts the wineskins and the wine is ruined. And you have to understand that they would take new wine and pour it into uh, skins and it would then ferment but as it fermented, it would release gases. Now, if the wineskin was new, it was flexible. It was pliable. It would be able to expand with the new wine, and both were preserved. You always put new wine into new wineskins because you had to have something that was flexible. It was able to give a little bit. You didn't put new wine into old wineskins because the old skin had become hard and rigid, and as the new wine was poured in, it would release the gases, and the old wineskin couldn't couldn't move it couldn't expand it was too rigid it would just split open and the wine would spill out Jesus said you put new wine into new wineskins what he was saying through these two illustrations is this he was saying look I haven't come to patch up Judaism see I haven't come to just put a new patch a new thing on an old system I haven't come to pour new life into an old rigid religious system known as Judaism, especially because the Pharisees had gotten a hold of it and it had become extremely rigid, extremely hard in the sense it was very legalistic, there was no room. Uh, they had totally uh, defined the parameters God could work in. It was a very rigid system, legalistic system. And Jesus is saying, look, I haven't come to just patch up Judaism. I've come to bring a whole new thing, see? I've come to bring new wine. But I have to pour it into new wineskins. I have to have a whole new container. Uh, and my container is going to be the church. And I'm calling men and women right now, is what he was doing, to be mine, 
and to be the ones that I was gonna, I'm going to eventually pour this new wine. And it's interesting, in Scripture, the Holy Spirit is likened to new wine. I'm going to pour out my spirit to do a new work into a new container that's flexible and able to stretch and move with the new work that I want to do. I can't use Judaism. First of all, it's on its way out. And secondly, the Pharisees have made it such a rigid thing. It would never be able to hold the new work that I wanted to do through the Spirit. It's interesting that even today, so many, well, let's put it this way, throughout history we have seen many new moves of God, God using new wineskins to pour new wine into, and at one time throughout the history of the church, movements like the Reformation, which gave rise to the Lutheran Church, was on the cutting edge. It was the, it was the new work of God. God reached into a dead religious system known as Roman Catholicism. He pulled out uh, a Catholic monk named Luther, and he began to work in his heart, and Luther became the focal point of a new work of God, a new outpouring of God's Spirit. And he gathered together a, a following, and, and together they reformed the uh, church. It was a new work of God, but they became rigid after a while, see? and began to become hard. And God, whenever a system becomes rigid, starts to, to kind of, uh, where life begins to leave and rigor mortis begins to set in, the Lord, what He does is He reaches in and pulls out the, the remnant that's still alive, and He uses them to do a new work, a new wineskins, a new outpouring of the Spirit. And at one time, Methodism and Presbyterianism and all these others were on the very cutting edge of the work of the Spirit. They were dynamic. You know, the Wesley brothers were the Methodists. They were the ones that were on fire. Their, the, their England was taken by these men, Whitfield and the Wesleys and all. And, uh, and, and the same thing with the Presbyterian Church. At one time, these were the new wineskins that God poured new wine into and did a tremendous work. But in time, they began to get hard and began to get overly structured and began to put God in a box and say, God, you've got to work only in this way. And the Lord won't be, he won't be restricted. He'll do what he wants to do. And if the old wineskin can't hold the new wine, he'll just raise up a new wineskin, a new group of people to pour new wine into. My prayer is that God would always keep us flexible and pliable. Because the history of Calvary Chapel, if you look over at the history of Calvary Chapel, when God started Calvary Chapel in the middle 60s, God wanted to do a new work. There was a whole generation of young people that were lost. The hippies, they were had, had uh, turned on and tuned out, you know. And they had just kind of gotten away and, and were anti-establishment, were just kind of a whole counterculture unto themselves. But God loved them, see. Even as God loved the sinners in Jesus' day, the, the ones that the Pharisees should have been reaching out to, but they had become so rigid and hard and so hateful towards these people that they were no use to God anymore. And so what happened was God reached in and pulled out some faithful. Paul was a Pharisee. God reached in and pulled out some faithful. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He became a Christian. There were some good ones that God pulled out and began to use in this new work that he wanted to do. Same is true with Calvary Chapel. A lot of the churches and denominations at that time in the middle 60s didn't want anything to do with these kids. They were despised. They, they, they represented everything that most Americans were repulsed by, you know? Their rebellion, their laziness, their, 
their, their lack of respect for authority. Uh, everything, and, and, and a lot of churches didn't want anything to do with the hippies. In fact, some of the hippies who tried to come to some of the different churches were uh, denominational, were turned away. They were told, look, when you cut your hair, when you clean yourself up, you can come back. And a lot of them never did come back. And see, the church had become an old wineskin, rigid and hard and inflexible. And so God reached in and he pulled out those that were willing to be open to what the Spirit was going to do uh, and poured new wine out, a great outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which is what really was the thing that Calvary Chapel was birthed out of. And yet now we've been around for 30 years, 30 years. And I'm afraid that someday Calvary Chapel is going to become, if Jesus tarries, hard and rigid. I hope not. See, it's my prayer, and I hope you will join with me in praying, Lord, let's never get into the rut where we say, well, gee, God has always done it through this church this way. Let's not change. Uh, we need to change with the times. Of course, the truth, God's word never changes. That's, that's constant. But there are new ways. I mean, when God began to move among the hippies and they began to get saved, out of that new birth became new life and new songs that represented that new life. And a lot of these songs were, were obviously not the hymns that the church was used to. And so the church was like, oh, it's wrong, it's terrible. You know, and these hippies were just singing out of hearts of love for the Lord. Now that was contemporary, it was kind of rock music back then. Oh, the church condemned it, leaders condemned that kind of music. Well, today we've got the rap music. I personally do not like, like rap music. <laughs> But I'm certainly not going to sit here and say, I don't believe God can use it. I'm open to it, you know. I don't have to like it for to let God use it, right? Uh, so we need to be open and flexible to what God wants to do. Hey, we're living at a time when we're seeing a generation of young people totally lost. Unfortunately for us, they're not the peace-loving love children, flower children of the 60s. They're the oozy toting <laughs> gang, color-wearing kids of the 90s. They're a violent group, and yet God loves them. He wants to touch them, and we have to let him use us to reach these kids because it's a whole generation out there that Jesus wants to touch. And uh, I, I don't want to be left behind. I don't want for God to say, look, I used you at one time. Calvary Chapel was a great a vehicle, a vessel that I was able to use, but you guys have gotten rigid and hard. You have no longer have the heart for people. You're not hurting over these kids. I'm going to reach out and gather others to me that I can pour new wine into. I don't want that to happen to us. So let's pray and ask the Lord to keep us supple, keep us flexible. Blessed are the flexible, for they shall not be broken. That isn't a beatitude, but it should have been. <laughs> And so Jesus is just saying that. I want to do a new work, but I need to have new wineskins. Now it happened that he went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And as they went, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. And the first he said to him, Look, why do they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now these guys must have been following them wherever they went. I mean, they were kind of like gathering as much evidence against them as they could. I mean, they were, they were, they were there everywhere he went. Um, and they're watching every move. 
he and his disciples make. They're wanting to gather evidence that they can use against him. And they said, look, you know, as they were walking on the Sabbath, they were going through the, the, the wheat fields, and uh, the disciples were pulling the wheat off of the stalks, and they were eating it. Now, the Pharisees said, why are you disciples doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? It wasn't that they were stealing. Some people say, well, they were stealing grain. That was wrong. No, because in Deuteronomy 23, 25, the Lord said, look, you may enter into your neighbor's vineyard or field, and you can eat as much as you want to satisfy your own hunger. You just can't bring a sickle in and begin to harvest it and bring it home. But if you're hungry, God says, you, you may, under the law, go ahead and into your neighbor's field and take what you need for your own necessity. Uh, that wasn't the issue. The issue wasn't that they were eating grain from another's field. The issue was that they were doing work on the Sabbath. You see, the Pharisees had, you know, had gone ahead and cataloged all these things that you couldn't do on the Sabbath. And some of them were you couldn't do any harvesting, you couldn't do any threshing, you couldn't do any winnowing on the Sabbath. That was work. Well, the disciples were basically doing all that. As they were going through the wheat field, they would take the, uh, they would rip off the heads of the wheat, uh, you know, the uh, kernels off of the stalk. They would rub them in their hands, which was threshing. They were separating the chaff from the wheat. Then they would blow, and they would blow away the chaff and then eat the wheat. So they were harvesting, they were threshing, and they were winnowing all in that one deal just to eat. And the Pharisees saw that and said, look, why are your disciples doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? It's, they're working. I mean, why don't you say anything to them? They're breaking the Sabbath law. And verse 25, But he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and hungry, he and those with him? How he went into the house of God in the days of Abathar, uh, the high priest, and ate the showbread, which is not lawful to eat except for the priests. And he also gave some to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. Now this is interesting to me, because Jesus is saying to these rigid Guys, human need always takes precedence over the law. The law was not given uh, to kill man. The law was given to give man life, you see? And human need always takes precedence over the law. I'll give an example. We've used this before. I think it's probably pretty, pretty good in illustrating this. Say you're walking somewhere and you notice a pond... And in the middle of that pond, there's a young boy, maybe eight or nine, and it's obvious he's drowning, okay? He's going down, see? And as you're ready to jump the fence and rescue him, you notice posted on the fence very clearly a sign that says, you know, private property, do not enter, unlawful, you know, trespass, whatever, okay? Uh, what are you supposed to do? Obey the law and let the child die? Of course not. You go ahead and jump the fence, jump in the pond, rescue the boy, and you know what? No sheriff or judge in his right mind would ever prosecute you for that. Why? Because human life always takes precedence over the law. You're a hero. You're not a lawbreaker because you saved a life. That supersedes any other prohibition, right? The same is true with the law of God. 
God gave his law to save life, to protect life, to give man the best life possible. Yes, it was also intended to point him to his sin, but there was a lot of things in the law that was designed to give man a blessed, healthy, long, fulfilling life. And here the Pharisees had taken the whole thing and twisted it so that the law had become this oppressive, horrible thing that everyone hated when the Sabbath rolled around because, you know, there was more prohibitions and restrictions and things on the Sabbath than any other day of the week. And the day that God had set aside for man, for man to rest his body and to commune with his God, just take a day off, kick back, and just enjoy God and let his body recuperate from all the hard work of the week had been turned around so that now the Sabbath wasn't created for man. The Pharisees had turned it all around and now man was created for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was now the issue. That was the thing that, oh, and everything else revolved around that. Wrong, Jesus said. In Matthew chapter 12, well, let's back up to verse 7, okay? Same incident. He said, but if you had known what it, what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have you uh, would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. You see, what Jesus was saying here is, look, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You guys have made a whole thing of religious rituals, sacrifices, and things, but you have neglected the weightier issues of the law, such as mercy and love and compassion, you see? It's so easy for religious people to become blinded by their rituals and their dead regulations and rules, where suddenly the religious system becomes more important than the people it was originally designed to reach out and help, see? It becomes a god unto itself. A lot of people worship the institutional church in America, the church is really the object of worship. All the rituals, all the buildings, and all the beauty of the of the stained glass windows, and the uh, and all the you know all the the man-made beauty that goes into these things become objects of worship. Do you know in the Old Testament when the people were to build an altar to sacrifice things to God on? God says, "You are not. If you build it out of stone, it has to be built out of plain field stones, and you cannot put any iron tool to it to carve it." Because if you do, you profane it. Or make it out of dirt, just earth, heaped up and offer your sacrifice on the altar of dirt or on plain stones. Why? Because God knew how man was prone to begin to make ornate and beautiful objects that were designed to be used in the worship of God. And suddenly, attention was drawn away from God onto the object. And suddenly, the object became a th thing of worship. And people began to lose sight of the one that was all designed to point us toward. We see that all around America uh, and Europe. Tremendous cathedrals all over Europe that talk of a time when God was moving, you know. And God was moving and people were getting saved. And so they built this tremendous edifice to house thousands of people because the word of God was being proclaimed and a work of God and a revival was breaking out. But you know what? They made the thing so beautiful it became an object of worship. And slowly the spiritual life began to go out as people began to focus on, on our system, our organization, how we do things now. They became more and more rigid. The building became, and the, and the religious rituals became more and more the focus. And today many of those churches that at one time held thousands of people, if you were to go today, you'd find 15, 20 people. 
because become rigid, see? And, uh, and that's what the Pharisees were all about. Uh, the ritual was everything. Their religion was everything. Forget about the people. Who cares about the people? We don't care about people. We care about our religion, see? That's always very sad. And Jesus said, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Go, go and learn what this means, you guys. I desire mercy and not your stupid rituals and sacrifices. That's emptiness. Read Isaiah chapter 1, how God denounces Israel during a time of horrible apostasy and idolatry. And yet, in the midst of all this spiritual pervertedness and, and, and unfaithfulness toward God, they were still going through the motions. They were still conducting the, the feast days and observing the new moons and the Sabbaths and the sacrifices. And they were going through the motions. And God says, you know what? Take away from me the noise of your songs. I don't want your sacrifices. Uh, forget about your feast days and new moons. They're an abomination to me. Here's what God said in Isaiah chapter 1. Here's what I want. Verse 10. He said, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Ooh, that hurts. <laughs> Give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Think God has been said? I, I think so. <laughs> to what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity in the sacred meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. Don't forget, they were doing everything God had told them to do. This was all the things that God had said for them to do. Yet God was rejecting them. They were nauseating to him. Why? Because they were done out of a mechanical, cold, sinful heart, just going through the motions. There was no reality behind it. Verse 15, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Now, I'm not trying to say for one second that we're, as, as the Church of Jesus Christ, as bad as Israel. Um, but... I think that we need to, maybe in the light of what God said to Israel, examine our own hearts, you know? Are we just going through the motions sometimes? Or is there something real there? Here's what God said. He said, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow. You see, God's idea of religion always, always works its way out in love and compassion for those who are hurting and helpless and in need. See, uh, what did James say? He said, the religion that is pure and undefiled is this, to uh, basically to help the widows and and the orphans, and uh, keep ourselves from being polluted by the world. This is religion. This is what God accepts as true religion. It's all based on our relationship with Jesus Christ. But God says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be, shall be as wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel... You shall be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. No matter how bad God's people get, no matter how far away from Him they can move, God may reprove, He may chasten, but He always offers them 
an opportunity to come back. It's like, look, I don't care how bad you've gotten. I'm willing to take you back if you'll repent and get right with me. And stop going through this dead religious motions here and all these dead rituals and put some reality into your religion, you know? Start drawing close to me. Start living a holy life. Uh, you know, help others. Reach, reach out and, 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 and minister to those that uh, are hurting, the fatherless, the widow, and so on. If that's not going on, there's nothing in a person's uh, religion that God is going to accept. These were the Pharisees. They were cold-hearted. They were proud, self-righteous. They had no love for people. They had elevated their religious system to a, a plateau of, of idolatry. Um, and Jesus has come, and he's just basically dropping the bombshells on these guys, you know. He's just, and, and as they're following him around, Man, he's just giving them all the fuel that they need. I mean, because he is not about to back down. He came to fulfill a mission. He came to show people what true righteousness was all about. And these Pharisees are not liking it too much. And we're going to see in chapter 3 it gets uh, even worse. Uh, as now they begin to plot to kill him. These religious men who, you know, claimed to represent God and were upset because his disciples were you know, eating wheat on the Sabbath, but they have no problem with plotting to kill Jesus in cold blood. Uh, it's amazing how blind people can be with regard to religion, you know. And that's not just Christians or people in our country. Just coming back from the Middle East, uh, there's a lot of very committed Muslims out there who really believe that they are really fighting a holy war, and we are the enemy. And our State Department is not going to win this war with terrorists until they first begin to understand the mindset of a terrorist. You don't reason with a Muslim fanatic because in their mind, in their mind, they believe to die for Allah in the holy war is to have instant access into heaven. So, you know, we used to have something with the Russians when it was the Soviet Union and America that had pretty much the nuclear weapons and there was something called MAD which kind of kept everything in check which was mutually assured destruction See, which basically said we can both wipe out the world but we all know that if we launch you know the, the ICBMs first uh, you know we're gonna we're, we're gonna mutually wipe out everybody so who's gonna benefit from that so therefore, that kind of kept the balance of power in check. But now that Muslim countries have gotten a hold of nuclear weapons, uh, that won't work with them because to die uh, in a holy war is to have instant access into heaven. And um, the world today is on shakier ground than it ever has been. See? And really, that's what's going to, I believe, precipitate the rise of the Antichrist to power because we are headed for a nuclear, a limited nuclear exchange in the Middle East, which I think Zach the book of Zechariah talks about um, as they, as different countries, including Russia, come in to do battle against Israel. There's going to be some kind of a limited nuclear exchange uh, that's going to wipe out five-sixths of the Russian army and I think bring the world to the brink of disaster so much so that the whole world is terrified and will do anything to keep this from happening again even if it means accepting one leader that will organize or unite the whole world in a one world government. And I'm not sure how I got off on that subject, but uh, 
I'm sure it had some relevance when we started. But uh, so as we as we continue on, we'll see more and more uh, Jesus reaching out and helping others, and more and more of the hardness of the Pharisees' hearts coming through. As we'll see uh, more next time. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, that we have been blessed not only to have had our eyes opened and our hearts touched by you, Lord, that we have now opened our hearts to you and become your people. And you now live in our hearts, Lord. That in and of itself is more of a blessing than we can ever thank you for. But then, Lord, to be allow us to be a part of a movement that you have used so powerfully over the last 30 years. All over the world, Lord, it's more than we can even fathom. And yet, Lord, please keep us flexible. Keep us pliable. That we not become rigid and hard like old wineskins that you can't pour any more new wine into. Oh, Lord, keep us flexible and soft and willing to move with the Spirit and pour that new wine into us again, Lord, that we might be used by you to touch this generation for Jesus, especially the young people, Lord. Father, our country is disintegrating before our very eyes. These kids don't have a clue of what life is about, what it's all for, where they're going in life. These kids, just they, they're just trying to survive. They have no purpose, no meaning to life, no hope. And so at 12, they're into gangs even earlier, killing each other at 12, 13 years old. Father, you love these kids. Give us a love for them too. They're violent. They're, they're, they're um, cruel. They're hard beyond their years. And yet you can reach down and touch them. You've done it before, Lord. You've taken some of the hardest, calloused sinners and you've poured your Spirit out upon them and made them like Matthew, gifts of God to this world. We just pray you'd help us, Lord, to be an instrument that you might use in these last days to touch this generation of kids for you. Give us love for them. Give us open doors to touch them. And Lord, I just pray you'd use us, that they would get saved. We just love you, Lord, and just lay ourselves at your feet. We are nothing, we can do nothing in and of ourselves, but we're available. And I think that's all you really want. People that are available, that you might use for your glory. Use us, Lord. Father, we just ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen.